this in tight. When we get there, make sure Elton sees you, but don't say hi first. Look like you're having fun and you're really popular. Talk to someone in his eye line, preferably a guy. Make him come to you. And find an excuse to leave while he's still into the conversation. The key is always have fun wanting more. You got it? I got it. Why can't we just get some pizzas and get some beers and ha have fun? Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, I think fancy parties are only fun if you're fancy on the inside, and I'm just not sure we are. I'm excited, and I feel relaxed, and I'm ready to party with the best of them. What do you say we go bump into people? Yeah, I'm cool with that. <laughs> I love spending time alone. I'm good at it. And in the last 18 months, I've done a lot of it. Taking four hour walks around London, re-watching all 12 seasons of the incredibly underrated TV show Bones, and moving country are just a few of the activities I've conquered alone during the pandemic. And while I have enjoyed this independence, I'm ready for a party, or for a family trip to the West, or to take a leisurely walk into town and spend an hour or two casually perusing things that I'll never buy. I'm giddy at the thought of heading to Wexford on a weekend with my friends to sit around at 2am and talk about school as if we left 10 days ago and not nearly 10 years. But despite my excitement, I am a little nervous. In our months of a minimum six foot separation, I haven't missed the awkward handshakes or hugs. I'm not really a hugger. In a pre-pandemic world, my default in a social situation was to talk. Any hint of an awkward pause and I would fill it. Not that it made me or the situation feel any less awkward. It's something I've moved away from and hope won't return. But having returned to Dublin in the middle of a pandemic, my anxiety around social interactions is amplified by an awareness that the potential to run into a casual acquaintance is significantly higher. Inspired by this and my desire to not revert to the nervous talking of my past, I spoke with Kate Lenehan, also known as the Monday Coach, about how to prepare for a return to socialising, whether that's after work drinks, a huge party, or bumping into someone you know in the street. I'm Amelia Cullen, and this is Lately, the podcast that gives space to people to discuss the issues of today. Kate told me about the role of a life coach. Spoiler alert, they won't just tell you what to do. So a life coach is a trained professional that is there to help you to achieve your goals and to reach your full potential. And deep down at the core of a life coach's belief is that all of their clients have this limitless potential. And the main thing about a life coach is they don't tell you what to do. So they're different in that sense to a mentor or a consultant or sometimes a psychologist or a psychotherapist. They are there to help you to find the answers yourself. And that's really what's at the core of life life coaching that's what the foundation is is that you as a person have all of the answers you are the expert of your own life and the life coach is there to help you to really find those answers for yourself and I think the 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 best proverb that describes what a life coach does um, is you can give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day or you can teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for his life so it's really making that client making that person self-sufficient to reach their goals um, and and make their life uh, as best they can. Social anxiety is certainly not new, but as we return to normal, it may intensify, arise in situations it hasn't before, or be experienced for the first time. Kate offers some long and short-term advice to overcome this. Just to note that while Kate offers some brilliant advice throughout this episode, if you're feeling new levels of anxiety or worry, 
reach out and speak with your GP or find support services at aware.ie. So it's very common for a client to come to me and say I'm feeling very socially anxious and it might be about a big party they're going to or it might be in general kind of one-to-one conversations with people and really at the core of social anxiety is it means this feeling of being self-conscious, a feeling of being nervous about how others might be judging you. And the symptoms of social anxiety can come out in the form of uh, mental and physical. So we all kind of know those mental symptoms of anxiety, you're overthinking, um, maybe that negative self-talk. But there's actually a lot of physical symptoms that go with anxiety and and in general social anxiety. And they can be things like um, sweating a bit more, as you might find when you walk into a party, not just because it's hot, but you're also sweating because you're nervous and you're anxious. You might find that you your heart is beating a little faster out of your chest. You might find that you're talking a bit faster, you're moving a bit faster because you're quite agitated. So there's lots of physical symptoms as well. And I think the reason that a lot of people have discomforts or anxiousness around social events like parties is because parties really present present this stage for all of these uh, perceived flaws that we have to play out. So they play out in front of everyone on this party stage and we feel this lack of control. We don't know who we're going to have to talk to on the night. We don't know what they're going to say to us. We don't know what our reaction is going to be. And then of course when alcohol comes into play that has a whole factor in itself because alcohol at the core is really unpredictable. We don't know what someone else is going to be like on alcohol. We don't know what we'll be like if we end up drinking too much. So there's a lot of anxieties really around parties and and more people than you think suffer from this social anxiety. So at the core of it is this idea that if you are a self-confident person, and by that I mean you're secure in yourself, you're secure in your abilities, you tend to be, in inverted commas, good at parties. If you, um, there's this uh, ancient Chinese philosopher called Lao Tzu, and he says that because you are content in yourself, you don't need others' approval. And if you are content in your abilities and secure, you're not looking for that validation in other people when you're mixing with them socially or when you're at parties. So you don't have those social anxiety feelings. So really at the core, the reason everyone gets nervous about parties and knowing when to show up and knowing who to talk to, that all comes from a a lack of self-confidence or these perceived flaws that our behaviours or that our personality just isn't good enough. And we're looking for that validation in other people. So self-confidence is really at the core of what we call being good at parties or being um, not being socially anxious at parties. A glass of wine when you're getting ready, a round of shots with your new friends, a G&T before the first date. A little Dutch courage can be a useful thing, but coming to rely on it, not so much. Kate explains why a drink can have us feeling like the life and soul of the party. And the thing about alcohol and why we often lean on it as a crutch is because alcohol lowers our inhibition so it really helps us with our confidence and when we drink we get that hit of dopamine which is that kind of feel-good factor that feel-good neurotransmitter and that lowers our inhibitions and makes us feel less judged makes us feel more confident in our own skin we've all been there where suddenly we become this like incredible dancer on a night out because (laughs) our inhibitions are lowered and we feel that we're we're much better at things Um, and there's this great book called This Naked Mind by 
by Annie Grace and she talks about the fact that you drink to get that feeling of peace that someone who is not dependent on alcohol always feels. So imagine feeling so self-confident all the time that you don't have to rely on alcohol to bring that to a social situation. That's what her book is really about so would recommend that to anyone. But that's why we turn to alcohol. It's really because it gives us that dopamine hit. We get that confidence boost and our inhibitions are lowered. So I have some tips about building self-confidence more in that longer term because we do know that at the core of of being socially anxious at parties, for example, is that that self-esteem, that self-confidence piece. So when a client comes to me and they want to be better in social situations, really at the core, we're looking at trying to set goals around their self-confidence in general. A limiting belief is something you believe to be true about yourself, about others or about the world that limits you in some way. Kate discusses how they can form and how they can be dismantled. One thing that we always dig into is this exercise around what's called limiting beliefs. And limiting beliefs are these ideas that um, you may have carried for your, your whole life. And they're these ideas that you have about yourself that may or may not be true. And they're based on experience that you've had in life or what people have told you throughout your life. But they're often things that prevent us from seeing what's out there what the what possibilities and opportunities are around us so in life coaching we describe it as looking at life through a keyhole you know you're you're um you're missing so much of life around you because of these limiting beliefs so examples in social situations could be i'm really bad at talking to people i'm really bad at making friends i'm not a fun person i'm boring at parties those could be limiting beliefs that people have so a limiting belief exercise would be Try to listen to that self-talk you have. If you can't pinpoint what your limiting beliefs might be, you might just have to listen, try listen to your self-talk for a week or two. And whenever you feel that you are putting yourself down, try to pinpoint what that is stemming from and that's your limiting belief. So when you kind of have that down, when you've, you've identified what that limiting belief could be, write that in, in the centre of a page, draw a circle around it and do kind of a... a spider diagram with arrows coming out of it and write down all the reasons that you think you have that limiting belief so let's take for example um the limiting belief could be i'm boring at parties let's just say um so you'd write that down in the middle of the page and coming out of that you would have all of the reasons why you believe deep down that you are boring at parties so it could be things like uh, my friend one time told me that I was really boring at this party. Um, I'm really boring at parties because I'm not a good dancer or I'm really boring at parties because I don't drink alcohol. And then what you do once you have all of those limiting beliefs written down is you pick apart each one. And this is the best part because if anyone's kind of had... Um, I suppose, a fantasy of being a lawyer or something standing up in court. If you've watched too much Suits like I have, this is the part where you get to put on your lawyer hat and really, um, really pick apart those those limiting beliefs so imagine that you are in court against yourself and you're trying to disprove um, the evidence that you've presented so I'm really boring because let's take the first one my friend told me that one time that I was boring at a party so we would put our lawyer hat on and think of every reason that a lawyer would pick apart that statement so they might say um 
for example, has your friend ever been wrong before? What happened to your friend right before she said that? Has anyone else ever told you you're boring? And you ask yourself all of these questions and you'll find pretty soon that it's pretty easy to disprove that belief that you have. It just takes a different perspective, putting it on the other side of the room and pretending to be a lawyer about it to, to really kind of pick it apart. So you do that for all of your limiting beliefs and eventually you'll start to realise that uh, there's, there's evidence against having that belief and hopefully that will change that belief over time and as an example you won't feel going to your next party that you are boring at parties <laughs> so that's the limiting beliefs exercise um in in terms of the next one then um it's it's a similar one actually it's just about positive self-talk and identifying that negative voice in your head and we all have it um I like to call my one uh, Tracy I don't know why but that's her name and uh <laughs> sorry to every Tracy out there it's a lovely name but Tracy in my head is uh my little demon um but yeah it helps to put a name on it because you can identify with with Tracy for example and have those conversations so um we, we call it negative self-talk because we have as humans thousands and thousands of thoughts a day and I think up to 95 or 99 percent of those thoughts a day are what we call re-offenders so they're thoughts that keep popping back in multiple times a day and multiple impressions in your head and the reason for that is we're constantly telling ourselves these negative ideas we're not good enough or I'm boring at parties for example um I'm, I'm not good at making social conversation. Um, and, and these pop into our heads all the time and so, sometimes they pop in subconsciously. So the positive self-talk exercise would be, first of all, putting a name on that inner voice. So Tracy, for example. Um, and then what you do is imagine that Tracy's voice has left your head and Tracy is now sitting opposite you at a table. And uh, now you have to have a conversation with Tracy, but Tracy is your old friend. So how would you talk to an old friend? And we often talk to ourselves in the most disrespectful uh, manner out of everyone that we talk to in our lives. So think of a loved one and imagine you they were suffering maybe from the negative thoughts that you have in your head. What would you say to them? And it would likely be a conversation that has more compassion. It's got a much more positive tone and um, much more empathetic. So have that conversation with Tracy as if she's an old friend across the table from you and take note of the tone of voice you're using, the compassion you're showing, the empathy you're showing. And then... Um, give yourself advice and and just take on board maybe how you could potentially continue that conversation with Tracy in your head next time have that compassion with yourself so that's the the kind of positive self-talk piece sort of separating yourself from the inner voice in your head another really impactful thing for um, improving your self-confidence over time is journaling. So a lot of people do it already. I really like to write things down because it helps me to work through things in my head and a lot of my clients would like to do that as well. So journaling um, your accomplishments specifically from day to day can really help building that self-confidence. So at the end of the day, a lot of my clients would take out a notebook and just write down um successes or wins that they've had that day and I'm not talking about you know I got a promotion today because that's not going to happen every day we're talking about the little wins so for example I said hi to the guy on the Lewis next to me today um, which I would never normally do you know I was I was social in that situation or it could be um, I made small talk with someone in the queue beside me um, in the line to get our coffee 
they're just kind of social examples. So little things from day to day that you have accomplished and over time writing those down and, and going back and reflecting on them, you'll realise that you um, are kind of fighting those inner battles and inner beliefs um, from day to day. So journaling accomplishments is, is a, big, a big key one to boosting that self-confidence. I've tended to be a little cynical towards the gratitude craze, but Kate makes a compelling point about how it can impact your outlook. And as we move out of lockdown, the things we appreciate may have changed. Getting shoved in a crowded pub, sign me up. Another thing that is proven actually to increase your well-being and also to improve your relationships is showing gratitude. So we've probably all heard of this idea of keeping log of your gratitudes or keeping a gratitude journal, for example. Um, it could be something you do mentally, like sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I try to remind myself to think of three things I'm grateful for or I do before going to bed at night. And that just reaffirms things that are going well in your life and that you can be um, confident about. And that is actually proven if the more gratitude you have, the better relationships you have. So from a social perspective, that's a great one to do regularly as well. Um, a lot of people have probably heard of the idea of affirmations or positive affirmations. The idea of affirmations, it, it's um, really about that positive self-talk piece. So we have this negative voice in our head that tends to tell us we're just not good enough. Affirmations are all about telling you uh telling yourself that you are good enough and deep down um, having that belief. So a lot of people will have heard of affirmations or positive affirmations and it goes back to this idea of positive self-talk. So often we have that negative voice in our head simply telling us that we're just not good enough. If you get in the habit of telling yourself these positive affirmations daily, you actually start to believe them, it's proven. So it helps to build that self-confidence. So what a lot of my clients will do is when they wake up first thing in the morning or before they go to bed, simply if you type into Google even um, or YouTube uh, positive affirmations, a video might pop up that you can use and it just gets you to repeat them. So a positive affirmation could be like, I am enough. I am a great friend, for example. And you repeat these and eventually you're almost kind of tricking your mind into believing that they're true. And, and it really does boost those endorphins and boost that self-confidence. So we could go weeks leading up to a party and feel pretty confident about it. And then when it's only a, a day or a few hours before, that's when those anxieties really kick in um, and we start to kind of second guess ourselves and that confidence uh, takes a knock. So I have a few exercises that can help you in those, even those hours leading up to a social interaction that you're nervous about. So one of them is, um, if you've ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, it's a brilliant book and he talks about this idea of the circle of concern and the circle of influence and the idea of this is to recognize what is within your control in a situation and what is not within your control and what you do is you take a piece of paper or I mean you could do it in your head but it helps really to write it down so take a piece of paper draw a big circle and this is what's called your circle of concern. So in this circle, you write down every little thing that is concerning you about that social situation. So in the example of a big party that you're going to, everything that could concern you could be 
Um, I'm not sure um, who I'm going to be speaking to. I don't know what other people are going to think of me. I don't know will someone like the dress I'm wearing. Um, I'm not sure what I want to drink. I feel embarrassed maybe that I'm not drinking. So all of these different concerns we have. And then within that, draw a smaller circle. And this is what's called your circle of influence. And this is everything that you can control in a situation. So the bigger this circle, the better, because it means we're, we're kind of pushing into that circle of concern and actually making that space smaller. So our, our the things that we can influence is actually growing. And this is when this is the case, this is a proactive person. So this is someone that is focusing on what they can do in a situation. The opposite is a reactive person where their circle of influence is very small. So their circle of concern is much bigger and much more overwhelming. So they're focusing on the things that they can't control. But when we look at this circle of influence, so it's the circle inside the other circle of concern. This is everything you can control. So think of the party situation. Everything I can control is the time I turn up at the party. I can control whenever I want to take five minutes to go to the bathroom to get a bit of headspace. I can control what drink I'm going to order. I can control the time that I leave at. I can control who I go up and talk to. So there's so many different things you can control. Even for the things maybe that you can't control that are in your circle of concern, like other people's opinions or what other people are going to say to you, there actually is deep down one thing that you can control about those that you can write into your circle of influence. And it's what a lot of my clients, it's, it tends to be one of those light bulb moments of, oh, I never really thought I could control that. But one of the things is uh, you can control your own reaction to whatever that person says to you or whatever that person thinks of you. So if you're on a night out, for example, and someone says, someone maybe takes a dig at you or something, you can take that uh, moment between stimulus, which is what they say, and response, which is whether you let it ruin your night or not. You can take take a moment, take a deep breath, whatever it is. So take that moment and think, right, I'm not going to let this uh, ruin my night. That's something I can't control. I can't control what that person just said. So you, you, you let the thought come in and you just let it go because it's simply something that you can't control. What you can control is your own response, which is to not let it get to you. So visualization and mindfulness and meditation really go hand in hand and they can work really well in the hours leading up to a social situation if you're feeling a bit anxious. So when it comes to visualization, what, what I would normally recommend for my clients is sit on the edge of their bed or sit on a chair while you're getting ready and take just a few minutes. It only takes a few minutes before you go out to let the noise drown out. Take a few deep breaths and just focus in on your breathing. Obviously, um, what tends to happen as human beings is lots of thoughts tend to filter in and that's okay. Let those thoughts come in and just simply um, acknowledge them and just let them go and try always bring your focus back to your breathing. So those that are, are um, regular meditators or that do yoga, for example, might be very familiar with this. The difference when it comes to um, working on this for social anxiety and when it comes to visualization is once you reach that moment of being calm and your heart rate is down and your breath is steady, Imagine yourself now entering that social situation that you were anxious about. So, for example, imagine yourself walking into that party and not knowing anyone. Maybe that's what you're most anxious about in that situation. And when you close, when you're you're imagining yourself walking into that room, think about 
every sensory experience that you're feeling in that moment. So you know you're feeling anxious, you can feel your heart beating out of your chest, you can feel your palms getting sweaty, you can feel um, in general your kind of your eyes are shifting around the room, you're nervous to make eye contact with anyone, you're wondering where you should stand, how you should hold your body, you're just feeling awkward in general. And um, that's going to kind of those symptoms of anxiety might actually play out in real life. So you might find yourself sitting in your home and actually feeling those symptoms when you imagine this awkward social situation for you. So once you've imagined that, take a few moments then to go back to that breathing and get yourself centered once again. And then next time you imagine that social situation, this time imagine yourself doing it as the most confident version of you. So imagine what you have to change when you picture yourself walking into that room in order to do it as the most confident version of yourself. So this time, for example, I'm going to picture myself walking into that room. I'm going to stand really tall because tall posture um, gives off the vibe of confidence. I'm going to... um, my heart rate's going to be nice and calm. My breathing's going to be steady. I'm not going to be shifting my eyes all around the room because I don't really mind who I end up talking to first because I'm feeling super confident. And once you do that, once you can actually picture yourself in that situation, that tends to be um, that tends to have kind of positive reinforcement for us. We've pictured ourselves doing it, so we actually feel that next time it could be possible. So an important thing then after you do that exercise is to make a mental note or write down three things that you did differently the second time when you you know, nailed that social situation. So for me, for example, it could be, well, I was conscious that I stood really tall and and obviously body language plays a big piece in that. Um, I was conscious that I wasn't afraid to make eye contact with people and I didn't stand near the door. I walked kind of straight into the centre of the room. So those are three things that I now know, okay, in a few hours when I step into that party, those are the three things that I'm going to focus on. So something that a lot of people do when they're socially anxious is they put a lot of emphasis on this goal that they want to get out of the social situation. So they know they're going to a party and they really want to make a new friend at the party or they really want to meet their next boyfriend or girlfriend at a party. Um, And we, we kind of set these not unrealistic expectations, but high expectations of a social situation. So the main thing, if you are feeling socially anxious about going to a party for example is to not set your expectations too high set the goal as something that you can do very early on because mentally you're telling yourself once you've achieved that that you're on the front foot and the rest of the night is easy then so when a lot of my clients take on board this challenge they pick goals like okay um, my goal is to walk in the front door of that party and take three deep breaths That's a very simple goal. And once they've achieved that, they feel very confident. They feel, okay, well, I did that. That was my goal of the night. It's all uphill from here or downhill. I never know. (laughs) I never know that phrase, which one is actually the positive one, but it's all on the front foot from here. Something that's really easy to do before a party and it seems very practical is to simply be prepared. And that could be something as simple as knowing what you're going to wear before a night out, booking your taxi in advance, knowing what time you're meeting your friend at the door, different things like this, because Uh, 
you know, before we go out to a party, for example, sometimes we're just naturally a bit more anxious than normal. And if we're socially anxious about a situation and we're running late um, and we can't decide what to wear, these can just play into our head even more. And those symptoms are magnified times 10. So control what you can control in a situation before a party. And if that is something as simple as knowing what you're going to wear in advance and control that, because that is going to lighten your load of what to be anxious about before you actually go to that social event. With a lot of the talk around reopening centred around outdoor drinks and the pubs reopening, Kate has some advice for people who aren't big drinkers or drink at all. So if you're someone that either doesn't drink alcohol or you're someone maybe that um, is, is on a break from drinking alcohol or you're not drinking for a specific night or you tend to not drink as much as other people at a party, you can often feel quite anxious because a lot of, particularly in Ireland, I guess, a lot of social events revolve around alcohol. And for someone that doesn't drink, it can feel like the main purpose of meeting up or the main purpose of a party is purely based around the fact that everyone can drink alcohol together. But if that was the case, then everyone would simply stay at home and drink alcohol. So what I do with um, with my clients that are feeling anxious maybe because they're not going to be drinking at a party is to list out everything that that party is about out aside from alcohol so rather than shining the torch on alcohol as the main reason for this party they have to write down okay well actually the main reason for this party is my cousin got a promotion or the main reason for this party is a group of friends gathering to catch up and once you shine the torch on that idea of what the party is really about it takes that focus away from alcohol and it makes you feel and you know that the party is happening for a reason that you can really be involved in. Kate explains how to use your body language to your advantage. Whether at a party or by the water cooler, it's all about fake it till you make it. So body language plays a huge role during a party and it kind of, I guess that phrase, fake it till you make it, comes into our mind as, you know, if you can fake your body language, then at least people will think you're confident. But actually what I love about body language is it it positively reinforces our thoughts so actually if you if you do something with your body like hold a confident pose you're standing tall your your chest is out um you're not darting your eyes around the room you're making eye contact not only is this telling other people at a social event that you are feeling confident but actually that sends a signal to your brain to tell you that you are actually confident and it's scientifically proven so by holding these positive strong confident poses you're actually reinforcing the fact that you are feeling self-confident so it can really help so an example of I guess what what are not um confident poses so maybe what are more anxious poses are um your eyes are shifting around the room you are standing at the corner of a room probably with your back to a wall you might have your arms folded um you might be talking quite quickly often because you're afraid you're either boring people or you're afraid they're going to interrupt you so these are all um i guess postures and symptoms of someone that is anxious so in order to start telling your mind that you're feeling confident the postures and the body language that you should hold is standing tall put your shoulders back uh, chest out slow movement so you know when you're bringing your drink to your lips do it slowly as opposed to these kind of um, jerky fast movements that give off the sense that we are feeling anxious and don't be afraid to talk slowly to people hold the room when you when you are saying something because people want to listen so by doing all of these things and holding those strong confident postures they can actually reinforce that we are feeling confident Another thing when it comes to parties is 
this kind of practical element of where to stand in the room. And I really like this one because it's something we probably don't think about, but is really important. Often when we are feeling anxious at a social event or if we're going into a room of people that we don't know, what we tend to do is we stand near the door. We're almost afraid to kind of go deeper into that social situation and we remain on the periphery. And that's where a lot of anxious people stand. They stand near the door with their back to a wall. But this is actually counterproductive, particularly for anxious people, because what it's doing is the first people that you come into contact are the people that come through the door. So you're catching everyone when they're at their most anxious as well. So it's two anxious people now that are that are uh, caught in this social interaction. So the best thing you can do, and it sounds, it sounds counterintuitive, but the best thing you can do as an anxious person is to go deeper into that party because you're finding people that are more confident. So they're going to make conversation with you. And actually the best place to stand if you're at a place that has a bar, obviously, or or a place maybe that has a table full of food. If you don't know anyone at a party, the best place to stand is actually at the end of that. So often when people go to a party, the first thing they want to do is either go to the bar and get a drink or go and um, get their food or something from the table. So that's what they go do first. And once they've kind of come away from the bar, for example, with their pint, that's when they're, they actually lift their eyes up to think, OK, I've got my pint. I'm feeling OK now. Who am I going to have a conversation with? And if you don't know anyone in the room and you're standing there waiting for those people um, that are kind of settled and now have their drink, you're kind of in that prime location to have that conversation if you don't know anyone at the party. One of the best books I've ever read is called The Four Agreements and would really recommend everyone read that no matter what is going on in their lives. And the reason for this is the second agreement is really the most relevant when it comes to social situations because the second agreement is to not take things personally or it's don't take things personally. And the reason I think this is really important is because on nights out, particularly when there is alcohol involved, things get said, people make kind of um, side comments um, and I think the important thing to remember is not to take these personally. And the author goes into a lot of detail as to why you shouldn't take things personally. And he breaks down the fact that every single thing that someone does or says to you is a reflection of what's going on in their lives. And it just makes so much sense. If someone um, doesn't hold the door open for you, maybe they're in a really bad mood because they uh, got a pay cut that day or something like that, for example. If someone makes a comment to you about the fact that you're boring because you're not drinking alcohol, maybe they're doing that because they feel a bit judged because they're quite conscious that they're drinking a lot of alcohol. So it's purely a reflection on them. And that's something on a night out to really keep in mind if you're feeling a bit socially anxious. If you're counting down the days to command the room at a party, Kate highlights how to share that confidence. So if you would classify yourself as quite a confident, maybe extroverted person on a night out, I think it's really important to be able to recognise those other people that might be in the room or might be in the social situation that don't have high self-confidence or are feeling socially anxious in that situation. So the symptoms to look out for and, and to kind of help include that person, you would notice maybe that they are standing in the corner of the room or maybe they're standing near the door. They tend to have their, their back to a wall. 
they might be uh, nervous to strike up conversation and if you are talking to them they might be talking quite quickly because they're afraid that they're not holding your attention or that they might get interrupted because what they're saying isn't what you want to hear Um, and they might be afraid to make eye contact so their eyes might be shifting around the room so some things you can do as maybe a confident person in that situation is even if you're standing in a group of people that you think are confident you can always shift your body to invite other people into the conversation subconsciously so if you stand um with your back to the rest of the room you're closing off that circle of people so if you can simply you know shift to one side and open up your body language you're inviting people to the conversation that maybe would feel socially anxious otherwise or would be afraid to join a group conversation so simple things like that Um, and then something else you can do is to actually ask that person in the group maybe that's afraid to speak up ask them something simple like a direct question and using their name and remembering their name is reaffirming to them that you are important and your position in that group is really valid. The fear, the feeling that has launched a thousand memes. Kate has a unique perspective on beating the hangover blues. So most of us that have ever had a night where we've, you know, drunk a little bit too much will all be familiar with the fear in inverted commas or anxiety as some people call it. And it's this anxious feeling that we get after a night out. And it's a combination between alcohol, wear, the effects of alcohol wearing off in our body, as well as the fact if we are generally a socially anxious person, we're probably overanalyzing every single interaction that we had the night before. So it's a, it's a combination of those two things. And if you are someone that that drinks and tends to suffer from this fear the next day, the reason for it is because alcohol is, it's, it's really a depressor. And when you drink alcohol, you get this hit of dopamine. So that hormone in your body, that feel good factor um, goes into overdrive when you first take that sip of alcohol and it reaffirms the whole night. So you feel better and better and you kind of get addicted to it on the night. However, as the night goes on, it tends to wear off and you get that kind of low from that dopamine leaving your body. That low tends to hit us maybe during the second half of our sleep. So it's often why when you get into bed after night out, you fall to you fall asleep very quickly because your your levels are still quite high. However, maybe halfway through the night, your body's having that withdrawal of dopamine, but it's also having that withdrawal of sugar. So you're on a sugar low as well. And that's when you kind of tend to have that interrupted sleep in the second half of the night, or it's often when we tend to, a lot of people wake up very early after a party and they can't understand why, like, oh God, I got to bed at 3 a.m., why? am I waking up at seven um, and, and it's because of those effects of alcohol leaving your body and as well as that we know alcohol uh, dehydrates you it's it's a diuretic so it really causes all of that water in your body to leave you throughout the night and that's why the next day you have that kind of tight feeling in your head because it sounds really gross but your brain has actually shrunk <laughs> um, your brain has shrunk because there's there's less water um, going around your body so Those are kind of all the reasons why alcohol has this impact. And in terms of the fear the next day, the 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 biggest thing or or kind of the only thing that's uh, for sure going to get rid of that fear or that hangover feeling is time. Time is the biggest factor and it's something we obviously can't control. However, if you keep reaffirming to yourself that time is the biggest factor, if you're a socially anxious person, even accepting that and knowing, okay, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to be feeling better, that can often have a big impact. So just being aware that time is the biggest factor can, um, can have a positive impact. 
there's a few things you can do on the night to help if you tend to suffer from the fear or from anxiety the next day. So, you know, these are all maybe some very commonly well-known sensible things that a lot of people maybe forget on nights out but things like um, drinking water obviously uh, during the night and also when you come home so during the night obviously something that can help is whenever you're having one drink of alcohol have one drink of water um, and then when you get in after a night out it's really important to try and put those electrolytes back in your body that you lost during the night so you can e- even make up a very simple solution yourself with some my wadi or something uh, so my wadi water and just a bit of salt and have that after a night out that can make you feel a lot better the next day and then of course um, food is really important so lining your stomach with something healthy and filling before and then sometimes having snacks when you come home as well is really important um but something that uh, a few of my clients actually do and they do it before the night out in anticipation that they're not going to be feeling great the next day is writing themselves a little note and they put it beside their beds to find the next morning when they wake up and it's purely just a note to show show some self-compassion for themselves so if they know they're going to be anxious the next morning what they might write on the note is you know, if I was writing it to myself, for example, I would say, hi, Kate, you're going to be feeling a bit ropey today. Just remember the only reason your heart is racing is because you maybe drank a little too much alcohol. Have some compassion today, drink lots of water and just relax because by this time tomorrow you'll be feeling back to normal. So a little note by that, uh, a little note like that can just um, make you feel a little less anxious the next day because you were conscious when you were writing that that you knew how you'd feel. So it's really kind of giving you that control or that sense of control and then in terms of the not the day after drinking obviously that's when we feel those kind of hangover symptoms so one thing that that um if if my clients come to me and and they say you know I tend to feel really socially anxious and then the next day if I've been drinking it just goes into overdrive I'm thinking about every social interaction I had the night before the first thing I think that that's really effective for them is to focus on their body first. So focus on what they can control, which is things like start hydrating yourself the next day, eat something maybe that's that's mild and, and light, uh, take a shower, try to sleep a bit more the next day. Um, if you can't, because often, you know, the effects of alcohol are on our mind in overdrive, it's hard to sleep. But even if you can just lie on your bed, um, I was going to say light a nice candle, but you don't want to fall asleep if the candle's lit. Um, but you know have some some nice smells in your room or some kind of relaxing lighting and um, just to just to relax and make yourself feel a little more a, a little less anxious in that situation and then obviously um you know if you feel like you need over the counter medication that's obviously your own call but but that the main thing there is to look after your body first because by taking the control to actually do that we're focusing on something that is now within our control so although our our mind might be racing we're putting some controls in place and we're, we're taking some actions to really fix that so we're reaffirming to ourselves that, that we have control in that situation and then the next thing of course to look after is your mind so once you know your your body's on the way to recovery that's when we can kind of shift to thinking about our mind so those thoughts when we're feeling a bit kind of in overdrive, overanalyzing all of those social interactions from the night before. So if you are feeling a bit lethargic and a bit hungover, you're probably not going to do those usual coping mechanisms that you might turn to when you normally feel anxious. So, you know, people that suffer with anxiety would have 
maybe they would normally go for a run or they would normally do yoga. So depending how you feel the next day after alcohol, you may or may not be up for those. If you are, great, prioritize them and go do them. But if you are not feeling up to those, there's other things you can do. So um, focusing on your breathing, trying to get your heart rate down, journaling can really help um, to actually write down how you're feeling and write down what's concerning you about the situation and what you can actually control in the situation. So if you're concerned, maybe I was I was concerned that I maybe insulted my friend last night, but I can't remember exactly what I said. Write down next to that what you can control in that situation and maybe what you can control is saying sorry to your friend, for example, and that could lift a weight off your shoulders, could lift a weight off your friend's shoulders. But just have a think about what you could do to kind of ease that weight um, on the day. And then something else that's really important is to socialize. So we're social beings and the more that we, I guess, stay in our bed or stay in that dark room, not talking to anyone, the more our thoughts are going to go into overdrive. So it's really important if you don't have the energy to actually go go out and meet your friends, pick up the phone and chat to a friend, whether they were there the night before or not. Be picky about which friend you choose because some friends um, maybe like to emphasise how embarrassing we were the night before. We all have that friend, but we also all have that friend that's going to reassure us. So pick up the phone um, to to have a chat maybe that's not about the night before, something that's just going to make you feel a bit better about yourself. Um, and yeah, those are kind of the main things to look out for the next day to, to stop those anxious, the fear feelings. Sherry Turkle coined the phrase alone together to describe her belief that as we become more connected to our devices, we become less connected to each other. Kate talks about social media, validation and interaction, how getting older shapes our friendships and has some great advice to put yourself out there and make some friends. So in this day and age, it's often talked about the fact that loneliness is one of the biggest epidemics we have. And it's often um, the biggest factor actually in our both our mental and our physical health. And that's down to a few different things. I think maybe social media has a part to play. Um, if we think of, of social media, it gives us that kind of breadth of friendship. But what it doesn't give us is that depth of friendship. And I think that's where the loneliness really kicks in for a lot of people because we feel lonely if we don't have those kind of deep confidants and those those people that we can be very intimate and vulnerable with. Um, because the thing is, today, we've never known more people in history uh, because of social media. So that's why we say today, you know, um, you can still feel lonely in a crowd. You can still feel lonely with a big group of people at a party. So the impact of loneliness on the lifespan is apparently the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So if you are feeling lonely, it can often lead to depression, high blood pressure, poor sleep. And and obviously, um, these are really important factors when it comes to having a long, healthy life. So that's why they say loneliness and tackling loneliness is one of the most important things we can do in our lives. So we often talk about you know wanting to connect with other people and maybe some people with social anxiety they struggle to make those connections but really the foundation of connection with other people is actually having that connection with ourselves there's a great um interview done by Brené Brown and Dr Murphy I think his name is and um he talks about the fact that if we have a connection with ourselves and it, it goes back to the idea of having high self-confidence and high self-esteem 
If we really understand our self-worth and our value, it means we have the power to be who we are in that connection with that other person. And it means that we are then in that interaction to listen to that other person. Whereas when we're not comfortable in ourselves, we are actually trying to be someone we're not in that interaction. We're looking for what's called validation in that interaction because we're trying to be someone that we're not. And that can take a lot of energy. That's very energy saturating. Um, and that's why um, as humans, we kind of really need to work on that deeper connection by actually looking into ourselves first and trying to improve our self-worth and value. It's not unusual in our kind of mid 20s to 30s for our friendships to change. So a lot of people might find when they were in their teenage years or their early 20s that they had that breadth of friendship going for them. And then when they got into their mid to late 20s, they started to more so focus on that depth of friendship. And the reason for that is priorities shift. So we start to understand our values a bit more, which is really important. And values is something I touch on a lot with my clients um, because they're really at the core of who we are and who we want to hang out with. Um, but priorities shift. People find life partners or maybe they decide to have kids or they move halfway across the world because of their job, for example. So this idea of bringing our true selves into an interaction is really important because that's going to forge those deep friendships when we can really be who we are in that social situation. So one exercise that I think everyone should do is simply just to become more aware of what interactions are giving you energy and what interactions are taking energy away from you. And it's something you'll notice. So you'll meet someone, you'll have a chat. And when you leave that conversation, have a think, do I feel energized or do I feel feel absolutely zapped of energy and if you're feeling zapped of energy that's a sign that you maybe weren't being your true self in that interaction and that's a sign that maybe you either need to work on your self-confidence or maybe that person just isn't you, you, you don't click with that person on a personality or a values level something that I do a lot with my clients if they're unhappy socially is we do what's called the relationships exercise and I really love this one because what it does is it brings awareness and it brings about being intentional about who we spend our time with so what you do is you grab a piece of paper and you list down the the 10 to 20 people that you spend the most time with in your life at that current moment and what you do then is you score how you feel after each interaction with that person so you score from a range of minus five would be you have no energy it's it's quite a negative interaction up to plus five which is a very positive interaction so write down between each person on that page generally how you think you feel after an interaction with that person then what you do is you you review all your scores. So for example, look at um, the people that you spend the most time with and look, look at how you scored them. Hopefully they are the most positive scores, but more often than not, actually you're spending a lot of time with people that maybe have negative scores. Um, notice if there's any surprises on the page, maybe scores that you weren't expecting and see maybe um, how you could spend more time with the people that you've scored positively. So how could you spend more time with the pluses? So the plus threes and the plus fours and the plus fives, write down how you could spend more time with those people because they're the people that are giving you energy. They're the people that you can really be yourself around. And then when you're looking at the, the people that you've scored with minus figures, before deciding straight off the bat to spend less time with those, 
ask yourself, are there any wounds or anything that really needs to be discussed in the friendship? Because sometimes it could be very circumstantial. There's something going on in the other person's life or one of you is feeling insecure about something and that can really come into play in a relationship. So don't just suddenly diss the people that you've scored negatively, but ask yourself, Are there any wounds that need to be discussed and have those conversations with your friend? Maybe you're judging them for something or maybe you simply um, outgrown each other. Or I had one client where she would score nearly every interaction with her friend positively, but there was one particular topic that whenever it came up, it was a really negative experience. So what they decided as friends when they had this open conversation was that they value their friendship um, too much to stop spending time with each other so they just set a boundary around that topic that tended to bring kind of more negative feelings so they just as friends decided we're not going to talk about that anymore and that can be a really open and frank conversation Um, and then finally look at those important relationships in your life that are kind of contractual I guess so family people who you're bound to by blood or or even your other half for example if you're married um, look at what you scored that and have a think about how you could behave differently if it's not as good a score as you want how you could maybe spend less time if it's family extended family for example and um, how you could spend time differently with them so what this does is it really brings our awareness to the forefront and, and makes us be intentional about who we spend our time with trying to spend more and more time with those positively scoring people. So sometimes a client will come to me and you know they're feeling self-confident so maybe that's not something we need to address but they simply just want to make new friends so maybe they find themselves in a new city and they want to make new friends there or they realize they just kind of want to expand their friendship group so something that um I kind of challenge my clients to in that case is these three challenges so the first one is tapping into your friends of friends network so I know that sounds very businessy but um it's quite impactful often when we when we think about wanting to make new friends we often think it has to be someone that we've never met before we've never interacted with before but we we forget about the fact that we have all these people that maybe we've met at parties before, friends have brought them along, but we've never really had a full conversation or we've never hung out one on one. So think about those people that you might like to get to know a bit more and don't make the goal uh, to make this person your new best friend. Make the goal simply sending a message to that person to, for example, meet up for a coffee or make the goal ma- ma- uh, or make the goal messaging your friend to, you know, come along with with their other friend and introduce you guys. So something simple like that should be your goal so you don't set your expectations too high. The second challenge then would be this is, this is one that that um, a lot of my clients find quite tough and it's putting down your phone in public. So whenever you're out, whether it's going to pick up your morning coffee or you're in the elevator at work, for example, putting down your phone and interacting, trying to interact with those people around you. Often, you know, we're, we're people of habit. We often go get our coffee at the same place every single day. And by being on our phone or by not interacting with the barista, for example, that's really a place where we could really nurture a friendship because we're seeing that person every day but we we almost dismiss them as a potential friend um so just kind of increase your exposure and strike up conversations with people around you and again don't set the bar too high in terms of wanting to make best friends out of it the idea is to try and make yourself not feel as awkward in those situations and as humans we talk about this idea of exposure therapy so the more you do something 
something, the more you're positively reinforcing um, to yourself that you are able to have conversations with people you don't know. And that's going to help you on a social level. So that's the second challenge. And then the third one is go to a meetup or go to uh, an event at least three times. So that's the catch. You can't just go once. You have to go three times in a row. So when we talk about meetups or events, it could be there is this app actually called Meetup that they have in, in lots of different cities around the world and people meet to you know, discuss their hobbies or they meet to go for runs together um, or you could join something like a book club. I know someone that joined a, a group to discuss digital marketing, for example. So you have to have to pick an event like this or pick a gathering and you have to go three times because it's that repetition, seeing people more regularly. That's where we build the depth of friendship as opposed to the breadth of friendship. So really working on those on those deeper connections and again, not setting the goal too high. Your goal is simply to pick something to go to and go three times in a row. Thanks so much to Kate. Our chat left me ready to take on the world or at least stand tall at the end of the bar waiting to chat to someone new. Find more from Kate at themondaycoach.com or on Instagram at themondaycoach. But before we go, we asked a few friends of the podcast how they feel ahead of the world's grand reopening. I was super anxious about meeting up with people because I play a lot of sports and I've only seen a bubble of people, I suppose. And when you play GEA and tag rugby, there's 30 people on a pitch that you need to make small talk with. I haven't made small talk with anyone for the past year. And I've been having like really nice conversations with my friends and they've been deep and meaningful and we've laughed and we've supported each other. But now going back into the real world and it's reopening up, I'm really anxious about how to even approach people and like, where do my hands go? Am I staring too much into their eyes? Am I making too much eye contact? Should I touch them? Should I not touch them? Who's comfortable with what? How are they feeling? Am I making them feel comfortable? There's all these questions going through my head and it's making me not want to go back to sports, which is what I love to do. And sports really helps my mental health, but yet this anxiety of seeing people is hindering it. Yeah, it's a very strange concept, I think. We've been in our own little world with our own little bubble and now we have to go back to real life and there's all these factors that really make you think and yeah, our, our mental health is being, my mental health I should say is being questioned. Well, lockdown is over, so they say, and I'm looking forward to it, it's so excited because I'll make a whole new set of friends because all my friends will have had their hair done, their eyes eyes done, their eyelashes done, everything done. And I won't recognize them because I haven't seen them without a mask for so long. So it will be so exciting. I'm so looking forward to it. Yay! I'm so excited that intercounty travel is finally allowed once again. I can't wait to get down to Kilkenny to, to visit my cousins and my auntie and uncle who live there. We're really, really close and I haven't seen them all year. Um, and one of my cousins has had a new baby since we've been in lockdown who I cannot wait to meet. I am so excited to sit in a cafe for an inappropriate amount of time drinking an inappropriate amount of coffee with my laptop, doing my work, 
not in my house that I have to clean. I'm so excited to be in a theatre to see literally anything. Play, opera, musical, you name it, I'll be there. Can't wait. Just need to remember how to dress like a human again. I'm Amelia Cullen and this has been All Things Considered, a podcast about why we do the things we do. Find me at Amelia Amy Jane on Twitter and Instagram.